Um, my name's Rod. Uh, I want to add my welcome to, to Tamsin's and to uh, Libby's, um, especially if you're here for the first time or you're back from Queensland or Geneva or anything like that, yeah. Um, yeah, so it's a... Uh, a morning on inspiration and poetry this morning. Hopefully it'll also be inspiring. You never know. Um, but I'm going to begin with a prayer. Or never a bad idea. Well, maybe it is. Anyway, let's pray anyway. Loving God, thank you for this community. Um, and I thank you for... Just the fact of community and relationship and conversation. Um, just talking to Kirsty in the break and just thinking about the miracle of conversation, the way um, when two people talk, something that is not inside either of them but is magically created between them happens. And that in some way that you are in, in all of those conversations, um, creating something out of nothing or creating some, a third thing out of two things, all of those small miracles, um, I want to praise you for them. And I pray this morning that you might um, enable that kind of conversation to happen um, amongst us all as we um, think about your spirit, the work of your spirit, and how we can find the spirit in this community in a way that is safe and life-giving. Amen. Um, so yes, there was a spoiler alert in that prayer for those that were listening carefully. We're doing a, um, a series on the Holy Spirit um, and um, this is the beginning of the second trimester. Uh, so the first the first trimester is our kind of um, gathering of uh, data. It's the research phase where we ask the community a bunch of questions and get feedback from the community about the Holy Spirit, their experiences of the Spirit, their questions about the Spirit. And um, last week that um, culminated with um, a feedback week on all of the um, the things that you told us in emails, in um, scattergrams, in uh, post-it notes, etc., etc. Um, uh, our series um, is normally this next phase is broken into uh, kind of looking at a few things. Um, so, looking at the, I guess, the roadblocks, the issues, the problems that people had and trying to um, wrestle with some of those things. We call them roadblocks. Um, and then exploring hopes. We call that the kind of green pastures phase. So we were looking, asking people what their hopes were for the series as well um, and their questions. Um, so I'll just quickly go through what we looked at last week just to remind you or if you haven't been around just to um, give you a quick pricey of last week. Um, in terms of people's experiences, a broad variety. Um, some people had 
incredibly positive experiences, ecstatically, apparently, positive experiences. Um, people have had deeply transformative experiences of the Holy Spirit. Um, for others, they've just been mildly amusing or curiously gentle, wildly confusing. Um, and for some, somewhat terrifying and deeply traumatizing. So it's an incredible range of experiences. Um, and as we begin our second trimester, we, we really want to be conscious of that incredible range of experiences and try to create a space that can contain all of that um, where people who have had incredibly positive experiences don't feel like um, there's cynicism that is raining on those, but also those that have been traumatised don't feel like there's some kind of, um, kind of careless positivity that is not allowing space for that kind of experience too. So we, as we begin, we're just trying, we're going to try to create a space that can contain all of that. Um, so in terms of the roadblocks, you can see there's a list there. Um, and this is something that we spoke about last week, but the idea of trying to fit together a disenchanted universe with experiences that felt transcendent. Um, for those that listen to the podcast or if you're interested in the podcast, we, we did two weeks on this um, earlier in the month or the end of June, just looking at the fact that, um, yeah, we live in, in a culture which is telling us all the time um, that there is nothing spiritual in in this universe, and yet we've had these powerful experiences and how do we hold them together? Um, other roadblocks were people struggling to discern what is the spirit and what isn't, people experiencing power imbalances that violated them in, their, in the way that the spirit was um, mediated in their communities, um, teaching on the spirit that seemed to be focused on extroverts, um, experiences that seemed so inconsistent, triumphalist views of the spirit, um, so views that saw that your experience of the Spirit should lead you from kind of triumph to triumph, from victory to victory. Um, and the experience of feeling like an outsider. Uh, so a lot of people talked about being part of a community where everyone seemed to be having the same kind of experience except them um, and how incredibly lonely and isolating um, and dark that experience was. So those are some of the, the roadblocks that people talked about. Um, apologies, I know you can read, so but I'm reading these out for the benefit of the podcast as well. Um, maybe some of you can't, and that's okay. Uh, hopes in green pastures. Um, so people's hopes were that there would be a way to use the gifts of the Spirit and experience God safely together in ways that don't violate, um, and in ways that are spacious enough to, to hold the diversity of experiences that we have. Um, that there'll be um, spaces for transforming and empowering experiences of the spirit, spaces also for collective experiences. Um, for a community like ours, that can be quite a scary thought, the idea of trying to have experiences that are um, collective because we have so many experiences of collective experiences that we're violating or that felt like we were excluded from. So that's something that we will navigate with care, but we don't want, I guess, our history to mean that we just don't attempt to do any of those things. Continuing experiencing, continue experiencing the spirit as a source of comfort and transformation. 
and discover spiritual exercises and practices that engage in a more embodied experience of the spirit. Um, yeah, so what we're about to do now is sort of um, spend some weeks looking at scripture, looking at um, the Hebrew scriptures to begin with, and then um, the New Testament. And um, but beyond that, we will um, yeah we'll try to get quite practical and to start looking at some experiences um, and perhaps encouraging you to experiment with some practices that you haven't used before and to um, to see whether they have um, a transformational effect for you. Uh, and lastly, questions. So how do we engage with the spirit with healthy power dynamics that don't manipulate others? Um, how do we tell what is God, what is us, and what is something else? Something that will be touching on a little bit today what do we do with the spirit in other religions what do you do when your experience of the spirit dries up how do you rebuild trust with the spirit when you've had experiences that are damaging and prophecies that are wrong um, and what do we do with spiritual warfare um, yeah so that was last week that's well not just last week but that's the entire first phase of our series kind of in summary form there are obviously things that people experience that perhaps aren't there, but that's our attempt to capture as much as possible of what people shared with us. So as I said, um, for the next four weeks, we're going to um, have a look at a few passages from the Hebrew Scriptures um, and try to make some connections with those um, experiences with those hopes, with those fears, with those questions. Um, so today um, is just a kind of introduction, and uh, I'll be drawing on some things that um, Meryl Blair uh, shared with us in Fireside last month. So Meryl, for those that don't know her, Meryl Blair is um, a lecturer in the Old Testament or in the Hebrew Scriptures at Stirling College, which is the Church of Christ um, Theological College. And she's um, a lovely friend of the community. Um, so we're trying to get as much Merrill as possible. Uh, so we invited her to Firesides. We're, we're negotiating her coming to the camp. Yeah, so she's going to come to our, to our camp in September. What dates is that? It's like 23rd, 24th, something like that. So keep that weekend free. Um, but Meryl came and spoke to us about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Um, and so I'm just going to draw on some of the things that she shared and um, add just a couple of things to that, just to expand it. Um, but first I want to start with a little exercise. Um, so just a warning, you may not see the relevance of this at first, but bear with me. Um, so... Um, I think this is probably a safe enough question to talk to the people next to you about. It's not too personal. Um, how do you show fidelity to dictators? Um, so if you, live in a, if you live in a state with a dictator, um, what kinds of behaviours, what kinds of things do you need to do, do you reckon, to keep that dictator happy? That's kind of a crazy question, but have a bit of a think of it, think about it for a minute, and uh, you might want to talk to the people at your table about um, 
If you live in a, a state with a dictator, what do you do to keep that dictator happy? What does that dictator want from you? I'll give you a minute or two. Okay, I don't want to give you too long to talk about dictators because they don't deserve too much airtime. Um, would anyone like any, any thoughts? What, what do dictators want from us? How do we keep them happy? Follow the rules. Flatter them, agree with them, yep. Don't question, don't think. Yeah, because then, you know, thinking can lead to questions, just like sex can lead to dancing. Any other thoughts? Yeah, good. So to keep them happy, you kind of join gangs of people that um, attack those that criticise the dictator. Yep. Dob in your neighbours. Yep. That's pleasing a dictator 101. Dob in your neighbours. Yeah, that's right. So lots of outward displays of your allegiance. So a photo of the dictator up in your lounge room and a flag in the front. Gaslight yourself and others. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Con- yes. Constantly saying we're not worthy. Yeah. Sorry? Mass games. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, yeah, lots of um, big parades and people doing dances and things in... Um, Unison. State-approved dances. That's right. Very good. All in unison. Okay, that's all that dictators deserve. But yeah, they're the kinds of things that I was thinking and hoping you'd say. Um, Here's another one. How do you show fidelity to poets? How do you make them happy? No, no, no shouting out. Take a moment to talk to the people at your table about how you show fidelity to poets and keep them happy.
All right. I gave you slightly longer for poets, but not too long. Um, so what do you reckon? How do we show fidelity to poets? How do we make, how do you make a poet happy? Engage with them? How do you engage? In what ways? Read their poetry. Yep. Read their poetry. Think about it. Oh, sorry. Yes, Lani. Write them a fan letter in the form of a poem. Beautiful suggestion. Sorry? Buy them a drink. <laughs> unless, unless it's Dylan Thomas. Allow them to be sad. Oh, that's a soulful answer. Have, yeah, have your own interpretation of their poems. Maybe one that they've never heard before. I think a lot of poets are very excited when people interpret their poems in ways that they've never thought of themselves. Unless they're paranoid dictator-type poets. Give them space to create. Yep. Leave them alone. <laughs> Especially those introverted poets. Like here's a list I prepared earlier. Um, so we've touched on a lot of these. So I gave myself a lot longer to think about it than I gave you. So, um, and I came up with some of these things. So read all their poems. Um, again and again. So read them over and over again. Um, and never think that you've exhausted their meaning. I think that would make a poet happy. Um, ask great questions of their poems. Um, and ideally new questions each time you read them. Uh, know their style, know their biography. Um, so read about their life and see the ways that their life interacts with the poems that they've written. Love things in the way that they do and in the way that they love them, love the things they do and in the way that they love them. Um, cultivate the same habits of keen observation and wild imagination. Um, I think when poets go and visit schools and talk to school children, um, I think the thing that, that often will bring a poet joy is when they see um, kids who are able to read a poem and then kind of operate in the same way in interaction with the kind of the detail of their own life and experience. Um, and obviously write your own poems. And it's, it's fascinating with, um, with kids that fall in love with a particular poet um, or people that fall in love with a, with a particular poet um, they so often follow the same journey where initially they, they write poems that are almost identical in style to the poet that they love and then slowly over time they develop their own voice and their own style and they drill down into the, their own unique experience and context to write poems from their own observation and their own experience 
and as they engage with the particularity of their own life, they write poems that are about the same universal themes that all poets write about. Love, loss, pain, joy, praise, lament, friendship, beauty. That would be a good place to end it, wouldn't it? But um, sadly, there's more. I think um, overall what Meryl Blair came to tell us was that the way we should approach the Hebrew Scriptures and the way we should approach what it says about the Holy Spirit is kind of as we would a collection of poems. But that we should do it even more carefully, remembering that this particular collection of writings is very, very ancient, especially when we're talking about the Hebrew Scriptures. And, um, and that it's co-authored in a mysterious way. Um, I think that's what makes Scripture um, something that we need to handle with even greater care. The fact that Traditionally, our belief about Scripture is that it has a divine author and it has human authors. And that 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 mysterious relationship between those two authors is something that requires incredible interpretive care. And that making, making sense of that co-authorship, making sense of the fact that this is a human and a divine document in this mysterious way, uh, will always be an elusive and an open process. And I guess if, if there's one thing I want you to, um, to take away from today is just um, the realisation that if, how crazy it, it is to expect that that process would be easy of interpreting this document. How could it be easy given the nature of this text? I'm going to talk about a few, um, talk about that in a few specific ways and um, just highlight a few things that Merrill wanted us to bear in mind as we engage with um, Hebrew scripture generally, but also as we, um, as we think about the Holy Spirit um, in Hebrew scripture. Um, as I said, she wanted to remind us that the conversation about the Holy Spirit always needs to remain open and ongoing, as is inevitable with a text that is primarily poetry and story. Um, and even the history, even the history in the Old Testament is so much shaped by, by the symbolic, by the mythical by imaginative elements. Um, so many of us were brought up to read um, the Exodus, to read the story of the flood in a really flat, historical way. Um, but as you, the more you interrogate those stories and the more you see them um, in mythical and poet, poetic ways, the more you see um, the incredible care and 
poetic formality that shapes those stories. I was listening recently to um, Peter Enns, who's a, a fascinating and fantastic um, Old Testament scholar, has a great um, podcast called The Bible for Normal People. Ironically, Bible for Normal People. But he was just talking about the, the, ten, the ten plagues in, um, in the Exodus story and the way that in the Hebrew they're grouped very clearly into three groups of three, each plague addressing a particular Egyptian god um, and culminating in the tenth plague, um, the death of the firstborn, which again has powerful symbolic value um, in the context of the whole history of um, firstborns being owed to gods. Um, We see that in Exodus as well, that God says that um, the firstborn of Israel are all owed to God, um, but that you can give God a pigeon or a lamb instead. But it's a very, it's a strong, incredibly strong theme. Um, And seeing it as poetry and seeing it in those mythical ways um, allows us to take a step back from some of the details of the story, which can be shocking, and they are shocking often, um, and to realise that what's going on here is poetic messaging, which is much more subtle and which is much more complex than um, just a flat reading of those stories would allow. Um, We've talked on a couple of occasions in our community about the flood story and how if if you read the flood story as um, a flat historical story of God wiping out everything and everyone, um, then it is incredibly confronting and shocking. Um, But if you instead see it as a flood story in conversation with many other Near Eastern, ancient Near Eastern flood stories, a flood story that um, instead of portraying the flood as a bunch of frustrated gods getting tired of noisy humanity and wanting to shut them up, um, but you see it as a story that takes that motif and turns it into a story where God promises to never do that again. Um, and so suddenly something which is some horrific, seems like some horrific historical event becomes an act of poetic reimagination, taking a story from the surrounding cultures and turning it into something that shows a different aspect of God, a surprising and new revelation of a God that is not a petulant and fickle destroyer, but a God that seeks to establish fidelity. We will never be able to say owl. (laughs) Um, We'll never be able to say all that can be said about the Holy Spirit. Um, So the second thing that Meryl wanted to remind us um, is that our conversation about the Holy Spirit, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, the conversation about the the Holy Spirit will always, there will always be more to be said, um, and there will be always 
more images to discover and more metaphors to explore when it comes to the Holy Spirit. Um, we did an exercise with Meryl where she, um, just on the whiteboard, she got people to call out um, all the images for the Holy Spirit that they, um, they had encountered in the Old Testament or that they felt like summed up an aspect of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And um, the activity just went on and on and on. Um, and we filled, I think we filled up both sides of the whiteboard and could have kept going. Um, so it's just incredibly important to, to realise that um, to reduce the Holy Spirit to wind uh, and that's it is to, to really shortchange what the Old Testament has to say about the Holy Spirit. Does anyone, was, who was there with, with Meryl? Uh, lots of people. Do you remember some of the, what were some of the metaphors and images that people came up with? Do you remember? Or that you thought of at the time? Oh, the whiteboard's still in there with the words. Well, you, you can go and explore it afterwards. Do you remember that one, Asher? Mm. Yeah, so it's a beautiful image of this kind of subterranean reality that kept kind of popping up in, in various places um, slowly. Yeah, vague but beautiful, like so much poetry. Um, she also wanted to emphasise to us um, just the incredible playfulness of the language of Hebrew, um, and that the Hebrew writers, if they could come up with a word that had two or three different meanings rather than a word that had one and would be clearer, they would always go for the ambiguous term, um, especially if there was some kind of wordplay or especially if it rhymed with the next word um, So there's this incredible capacity in Hebrew, um, but also an incredible habit on the part of the, of the writers of the Old Testament, of the Hebrew Scriptures, um, to keep things playful, to keep things open, to keep these things ambiguous. Um, and it's fascinating just to reflect on what that says about how we are to engage with these texts. Um, the very nature of the language chosen is to pursue openness, to pursue ambiguity, to pursue an ongoing conversation and different interpretation rather than some kind of clarity that shuts down the conversation and that ends the conversation. And it just reminds us, I guess, that, um, that the very nature of the language used in the Bible is um, to point us to the fact that um, we're not dealing with a text that wants to dictate to us, but we're dealing with a text that wants to open things up for us, a text that draws us in, um, a text that wants us to engage with our own sense of play and imagination um, rather than fear and the desire to get things right. Um, and it's 
it's kind of tragic in the history of interpretation with the Hebrew Scriptures that so much of that playfulness has been uh, removed in the way that the Bible has been interpreted, um, so much of the wordplay. Uh, Merrill pointed to one particular instance of this, um, that in Genesis 1-2, the phrase that the earth was formless and void um, is in Hebrew, tohu vavohu. So there's this beautiful, beautiful rhyme there, which um, in Hebrew reminds us that um, it's poetry and that the writers are trying to seek beauty um, and rhyme and poetic sensibility in the way they construct this. Um, and it makes, it, kind of a, it makes a mockery of us trying to attempt to use these texts as some kind of um, biology or evolutionary textbook um, when the whole point of it is to open up our imagination. The last thing that she wanted us to remember is um, it's a more complex idea, I guess, but that the encounters with the Holy Spirit always um, precede language. Um, that what the Holy Spirit is always doing is, is breaking through the known um, and trying to take us beyond the current boundaries of language um, to something new, um, to try to crack open a form of imagination and create a new form of imagination, to, to create forms of language that don't even exist, to create realities that don't even exist. Um, And that if the Holy Spirit and encounters with the Holy Spirit precede language, then um, it brings us back to the mystery of the authorship of the Old Testament, the mystery of the authorship of Scripture, um, this strange, mysterious interaction between human beings, the language that they have, and a Holy Spirit that is um, seeking to crack things open in a gift of energy, a gift of love, a gift of emotion that doesn't necessarily contain its own language, that somehow we need to take that impulse from the Holy Spirit and turn it into language. It makes, and this is something that we'll, we'll talk about a lot down the track, um, but it does raise very interesting questions for our own experiences of the Holy Spirit, for those times when we, f we feel like the Holy Spirit has, um, or God has said something very specific to us, um, and that uh, suggests perhaps a humility and a, and a carefulness in the way that we use those messages, um, a carefulness in discerning um, what is, what comes from the Holy Spirit and what are the words that we bring to that experience um, that, that are our own um, and that we need to be humble about, we need to be careful about, we need to not be too um, confident 
about. Um, and I guess it's just a general sensibility that we want to cultivate in this series of um, a sensitivity to mystery, a sensitivity to um, the fact that we don't, when we have experiences of the Holy Spirit, we, don't, we never know where the Holy Spirit ends and where we begin. And so we need to um, just be very gentle, especially if we get words for other people. We feel like God wants us to say a particular thing to another person, um, just to recognize and to have humility as we share that with that other person and to say, I don't know where I end and where the Holy Spirit begins in this, but I still want to share this with you um, in all humility. But as I say, that's something that we can explore a lot down the track. Um, Anyone have any, um, just looking at those five things up there, um, just before we move more towards communion, any thoughts, any reflections? Obviously, for those that weren't there on the night, um, some of this will be new or perhaps, uh, especially as articulated by me, a little bit nebulous. <laughs> but are there any, any thoughts or questions? Okay, I'll bring you the mic. Um, perhaps it's good not to have the mic because I thought I was just going to tell you something about Peter. <laughs> he might listen to the podcast. I think I can, I can say it because he's not here. Anyway, um, it's, uh, it's a little story um, I just wanted to share um, about when I was living in Hong Kong. And um, that was a, an amazing time for me growing as a Christian with learning about the Holy Spirit as well. And I saw some, um, as you listed, some of the things were amazing things, frightening things, had experiences, um, yeah. Um, but my own uh, personal little experience with Peter was that um, he'd come to church because I went and the kids went and he was you know, part of our family communion group there in Hong Kong. And um, so he knew what I was like about praying and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, one day, Pete gets bitten by a poisonous snake. And uh, Tomas comes running into me and saying, Mummy, Mummy, Dad's just been bitten by a poisonous snake. And it was very frightening. Um, the snake was only this big. <laughs> and Pete's quite tall and it bit him on his big toe, blah, blah, blah. So... He gets rushed to hospital, um, and uh, it's all very frightening for me because it's not something I'm familiar with, poisonous snakes, and this was a venomous, quite a venomous one. And um, But he was treated well, and I remember visiting him in hospital the day after, um, and as I went into the hospital, I was prompted in myself, just these words, I want you to lay your hands on him and pray for him to be healed. And I thought, oh, dot, 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 dot. <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> um, and then the little Joan of Arc thought came into me. It's like, how do you know when you're being talked to by the Holy Spirit? And she said, well, you know, I use my senses and emotions. And um, 
So I thought, oh, crikey, I don't know if I can do this. And then I reminisced about the, the three ways that God can prompt you. And, and you're talking about preceding language. So that had preceded language for me. Um, it was this thought, this image of laying hands on my husband for healing. Um, I didn't do it. I hastened to add at that time. But I left the hospital and walked down uh, Nathan Road, which is a really big street in Hong Kong, and went to look for some food for Peter. And on my way down, I walked past a church called St. Andrew's, and I thought, I'm just going to go in there and just sit quietly with this because I just don't know what to do. I'm a bit scared. And I sat and I prayed and just had a really nice quiet time. And then as I looked up, there was a verse written in the old-fashioned way on the blocks, and it was from James when it says, lay your hands on them so they will be healed. And I thought, what the? <laughs> okay, now comes the words, now come the scriptures. Um, and then I thought, okay, look, if you really want me to do this and you know that I don't want to, um, give me a third thing that I cannot miss. So I'm walking down Nathan Road and I'm looking, now I'm really, really looking for a third thing to identify that I've got to go and do this thing. And do I see anything? No. So I go into my favorite restaurant. It's, a, it's an upgraded McDonald's. And I'm looking out over the harbor and I have something to eat. I get something for Peter. And as I sit there and eat and I look out, what do I see but this amazing rainbow? And I thought, if God's going to give you a sign, there's your sign. He, does, he, he will not let you miss it. I mean, I was looking and looking and looking, and there it was. I just looked out the window, and I thought, that's it. It's a rainbow. That's what you just, all your promises were in that rainbow. And that was the poetical bit for me. So I went back. I laid my hands. I said, Pete, I'm really sorry about this, but I'm going to have to pray for you in front of these Chinese nurses and doctors. So I, I did it, and I went away, and oh, I'm still alive. <laughs> um, and he had a week off, uh, first week he'd ever been sick in his life. And he read a book that actually changed his life during that time, changed his attitude to a lot of things. And I thought, oh, there you go. Who knows? Thank you for the time. Thanks, Steph. Anything else that people want to share? I've been um, struggling to pray lately, or actually quite a while, like six months or so. And um, it was actually in the middle of last week's sermon that had nothing to do with the sermon, but I had this realization that um, that I'm a lot of my strengths are nonverbal, so music. Love languages are like physical touch and quality time. And so communication is not my primary connection point. So why am I putting so much pressure on myself to pray in words? Um, and it sort of like just relieved some of the pressure and the tension of, of you know, dogmatically, oh, I should pray because that would make me a good Christian kind of thing. And I just released that, that pressure on myself. Um, and so it's, it's great to actually see point five there, like that um, encounters with the spirit precede language. Um, 
and now I'm starting to, instead of speak words to God, but just sort of sit and allow images and impressions and then almost like almost receive them and send them back up again. Not that God's up or down, but if you know what I mean? Like um, just allow myself to be moved and also to express things to the Holy Spirit or to God from an emotional place that precedes language. And it's just opened up this whole permission to pray in a way that is not how I've learnt before. So, yeah. Yeah, Thanks, Matt. There's this... Um rabbinic tradition um, that talks about um, Moses' encounter with God in the burning bush. Um, And that tradition um, in classic rabbinic style sort of thinks about what, what did God actually say to Moses? And one of the traditions is that the only thing that Moses heard was an indrawn breath. That was it. And everything that came out of Moses um, in terms of the law and um, the exodus and this incredible uh, work of imagination that created a way of being uh, in the Torah that was unknown in the time, in his time, comes out of this kind of encounter, this incredible non-verbal encounter um and i think it's yeah it's it's a beautiful it's a beautiful image to, to go it doesn't yeah it doesn't have to be words at sometimes just an a completely non-verbal experience of of encounter of oneness of the transcendent of hope of goodness can um can change everything and it doesn't have to be in words so there's both Humility on the one hand, we need to have humility about the words that come to us. Um, but there's also incredible encouragement that it, um, yeah, we don't have to be verbal people to have an incredible experience of encounter with God. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Just sitting, sitting with your pain. You don't necessarily need to turn that into words for God to be able to connect with it. Yeah. Thanks, man. Anything else before we communion, Asha? Just on that last point, um, I was thinking this morning about how when I had my first or second pivotal encounter with the Spirit, that was very supernatural um, that I still can't explain. I... I really wanted it to take away, I think, my humanness, and my humanness is my ability to lament and feel sorrow and to feel desperation and that really hard part of the self that we struggle with. Um, but what I, what I found over the years is that actually you have to go into that to experience God more deeply um, and be really gentle and let it open up and be authentic. And I had a rift with God for a while because I wanted that experience to cure me of that, to take away my suffering, then to lead me into that transcendent ecstasy and to just be rid of it all. But it was like, nah, that's nah, that's not how how we do it. That's not how we be human. We have to really get into it and come fully alive and have a dance, you know. So yeah, it's nice to be 
on the other side of that now. Well, kind of. Getting there. Thanks, Asha. Um, which is a beautiful segue to um, communion. Um, Peter Enns, who I mentioned before, um, says that for him the best metaphor for Scripture and how it operates is Jesus. Um, that when we see Jesus as being fully human and fully divine, um, we see this mysterious two-ness um, where Jesus experienced every single thing that it was to be human, um, suffering and doubt and confusion and ignorance and all of those things, and yet also participated fully in the divine. And it's a mystery that we'll never understand. And it's the same, it's the same with, with Scripture. Um, that uh, in, our, in our Bible series, we talked about the fact that um, God lets God's children tell God's story, um, that the mystery of Scripture is that it's so very, very human um, and that as we read through Scripture, we see these little glimpses in this gradual revelation of aspects of God. Um, but those pictures of God that we see in the Old Testament are so very human, um, which again is why the conversation will always be ongoing because the Bible doesn't give us a comprehensive view of God but gives us little glimpses of God um, through these stories and portrayals that are also so very human. Um, that's a picture that Tilly did of me a few years ago. So, you know, it's pretty much exactly the way I look, but some differences. So as we move to communion, I guess I just want to go back to um, that Psalm 139 and remind us that um, there are two ways in which the Old Testament portrays the Holy Spirit. Um, there's the way the Holy Spirit comes and goes, the way the Holy Spirit empowers people for a time and then, um, for example, in the case of King Saul, um, removes itself from that person. So there's this coming and going nature of, of the Spirit. Um, we see it also in the book of Judges where the Holy Spirit empowers certain people to, um, to liberate Israel from oppressors for a time and then that time is done. Um, and so it's easy to, as we read the Old Testament, as we read Scripture, and as we think about our own experience of the Holy Spirit, um, to feel like sometimes the Spirit is with us and sometimes the Spirit is not. Sometimes the Spirit is empowering us and sometimes the Spirit is absent. Um, but in this, in this Psalm 139, we are reminded that um, there is another level um, at which the Holy Spirit is always present um, everywhere uh, and in everything, um, and that even when we feel like the Spirit is absent, that the Spirit is still in and through everything. Um, we've talked a lot in the past about um, Acts seventeen twenty eight, where Paul preaches a God in whom we live and move and have our being. Um, and in Psalm 139, we see this idea reflected um, as the psalmist talks about a God that is with us 
in every moment and sees every moment, a spirit that is in and through everything. Um, and it's funny, as, as you read this psalm, if you picture God as a dictator, this psalm is a terrifying vision of a, uh, you know, the surveillance state watching us in every second to see if we're going to do the wrong thing. Um, but if you see God as a mother, um, as I like to say, a motherly father or a fatherly mother or um, a nurturer or a poet, then suddenly this psalm becomes quite beautiful to feel like the presence of this poet parent is with us at all times. Um, so this is where I want to finish today um, because I know a lot of what we explore in this series will be causing questions and getting us to think about our experience in different ways and maybe question what we experience and how to make sense of it and is the spirit with us and is this what do we do when a spirit seems absent. Um, but underlying all of that, I want us, I guess, to try and rest in the fact that um, the Bible reminds us that ultimately, even when it feels like the spirit is absent, that the spirit is in and through everything and everyone. So I'm just going to read this again. Um, and then we'll have communion. Where could I run from your spirit? Where could I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in death, you're already there. I could fly away with wings made of dawn or make my home on the far side of the sea, but even there your hand will guide me, your mighty hand hold me fast. You created my inmost being and stitched me together in my mother's womb. For all these mysteries, I thank you. For the wonder of myself, for the wonder of your works, my soul knows it well. My frame was not hidden from you while I was being made in that secret place, knitted together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my body even there. Communion too is um, is a mystery, a mystery of the physical and the spiritual, a mystery of the divine and the human. Um, we can never pinpoint where spiritual food ends and physical food begins, uh, where spiritual drink ends and spiritual food and physical food begins. Sorry, I just got distracted by. A beautiful child. Um, so this is like a, um, it's like a physical poem, communion. Um, it is a, a mystery that we uh, can never exhaust. Um, communion is a conversation that has been going on for thousands of years and will continue to do so. Um, so as you come forward and crack the crackers with your knuckles and take the juice, um, yeah, try, try to connect with the fact that this is um, a poem, a physical embodied poem that is thousands of years old um, and a mystery that will never be exhausted of God feeding us in our bodies and our spirits at the same time. Um, so come forward if you feel comfortable. Um, we always have the same tradition here that if it um, doesn't matter what you believe, if you want to participate in this, you are welcome.
Um, and likewise, if you don't feel comfortable, feel free just to stay where you are. Um, but if you feel comfortable, come forward. When we've got a circle of people each clutching a little bit of cracker and a bit of juice, then I'll say a prayer and we'll eat and drink together. I'm going to pray the prayer on the screen. Um, just like all good poems, this prayer changes every week. <laughs> so there's, um, yeah, that could be a great project, just to make tinker with it for the entire series. Um, but yeah, so it's a bit new this time. Breath of life, free us from domination, death and despair. Spirit of God, when all hope seems lost, Create space for something beautiful and new. Go between God. You connect all to all. Call forth depth and wholeness in a world that flattens and divides. Stream of living water. Flow within us and around us.